Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Ella. And I'm Annie. And you're listening to Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstories of science. So Ella, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I found as a science reporter, I'm always hearing about these jobs, like these jobs that I never thought could be a job that someone could have. Right. And then you immediately want that job. And I immediately want that job. Mm -hmm. And that was my first thought when I met Nina. My name is Nina Lanza, and I'm a staff scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I work on a spaceship with lasers on Mars. Nina works on NASA's Curiosity Mars rover. So it turns out Curiosity has a laser on its head. And Nina's job is to shoot this laser at rocks on Mars to figure out what they're made of. So her Twitter bio is actually, I shoot the lasers, pew pew, which is very charming. Yes. Anyway, normally Nina's sitting at her desk in Los Alamos and she's remotely controlling this laser. So the rocks that she's shooting at, they're millions of miles away. She's never going to touch them. But there are some Mars rocks here on Earth that you can pick up. Actual chunks of Mars that fell to Earth as meteorites. There's about 100 of them, actually. And in December of 2015, Nina was searching for those meteorites in Antarctica. And while she was out on the ice, she and some scientists, they scooped up a rock. A weird one. So to the untrained eye, this probably wouldn't look like anything. No. It was about five pounds, dark gray on the outside. It's field number 23042. And now it's nine months later, Nina's back home in Los Alamos. And she's still wondering, is 23042 a little chunk of the red planet? Which is why she's on the phone with Cindy Evans. Hey, Nina. Cindy works at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, in a lab that does essentially space rock CSI. So Mystery Rock 23042, it's actually sitting on Cindy's desk right now in a Teflon bag. So it's pretty big. It's probably twice the size of my fist. You're going to hear the bag crunching if, as I turn it over. So today on Undiscovered, we're going to follow the journey of that rock, 23042 from an ice sheet in Antarctica to Cindy's desk in Houston. And we're going to get to know the rookie explorer who helped pick up that rock, Nina Lanza, as she battles one of the coldest, starkest, most isolated environments on Earth. And we're going to answer the big question. Is 23042 a little piece of Mars? So rewind. It's December 14th, 2015. And somewhere in the middle of the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, a twin propeller plane has just landed on a runway of tamped down snow. Some researchers hop out, and one of them is Nina Lanza. She's wearing this giant, puffy red parka. Because they don't let you go to Antarctica unless you have big red, the big parka. I'm told that, you know, this is because in case the plane crashes, they want to make sure you have a chance of surviving exposure. <laughs> is that for real? Like, are people joking Guys, when they say that? They're, they're not joking. I laughed and they didn't laugh. And I was like, wait, what? Suddenly, this reasoning makes perfect sense. There is nothing out here. Not a human settlement for 400 miles. Nothing but the layered red-black rock of the Antarctic Mountains. There's no trees. There are no human structures of any kind. 
There's not any animal, not a single animal, not a bird, not an insect, nothing. And, and that's very strange and very alien. Out here in the middle of Antarctica, even the ice is alien. It's blue. These ice sheets, they're so old. This ice is so compressed, it reflects back blue light. So I can't really do justice to this color. It's something I'd never seen in my life before. It, it is the, almost the same color as the sky. And so on a beautiful cloudless day, sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between where the ice ends and the sky begins. But there's no time to stand gawking. In the Antarctic deep field, the wind will knock the air out of your lungs, freeze your water bottle in minutes. So Nina and her teammates get to work. They pitch their yellow Scott tents, light the camp stove, test the satellite phone. They've got the basics. And now, their only way out of this place, that twin propeller plane, it's flying off into the bright Antarctic day, into a sun that won't set for the entire five weeks Nina's here. Now. Nina Lanza is really, truly out there. So why is Nina out there? It's because of a letter. A few months ago, Nina actually wrote a paper letter that she sent to the Antarctic Search for Meteorites program at Case Western Reserve University. Wow. Uh, Let's call it ANSMET for short. ANSMET for short. And in that letter, she made the case for why she, Nina Lanza, should be on this ice sheet right now. So yes, she would spend five weeks in the middle of nowhere with seven mostly strangers. She would live in a tent, she would brave sub-zero temperatures, all to be part of this ANSMET team. A team that's collected about a third of all the rocks we humans have from space. No, she'd never been to Antarctica. She didn't know the first thing about picking up meteorites, but she'd learn. So as for why you'd ever sign up for this, well, remote controlling a Mars rover, it's great. It might actually be the best job ever. It's pretty good. But rovers have limitations. Nina says sometimes the Curiosity rover will, you know, rove over to a rock. And we'll do everything we can, and we still have questions. And those questions will never be answered because we can't answer them with the payload that we have. It's so much better to have a rock in your hand. And there are just two ways to get a new Martian rock in your hand. Go to Mars. That's out for now. Or wait for gravity to hand deliver a Martian rock to you for free. And it's not just chunks of Mars that land on Earth. It's asteroids, sometimes bits of the moon or comets. Up to 17,000 of these space rocks fall to Earth every year. 17,000 clues a year. Which is a lot of clues. And yet, even with these rocks falling onto us from space, it took scientists an impressively long time to come to grips with this idea. So the theory back in the 1700s was that these rocks that they're seeing, these very strange rocks, were just regular earth rocks that got hit by lightning, a.k.a. thunderstones. Thunderstones. But in 1803, something happens that these scientists cannot ignore. A globe of fire appears in the sky outside the village of L'Aigle, France, followed by six minutes of rumbling. The people who hear it say it's like a carriage rolling over cobblestones. That's, wait, like a ball? A ball of fire. Oh. So that ball of fire was an exploding meteorite, and it drops about 3,000 space rocks over L'Aigle, France. 29-year-old scientist Jean-Baptiste Biot travels from Paris to investigate. Everyone agrees in saying that the stones smoked on the spots in which they had fallen. When brought inside the houses, they released an odor of sulfur so disagreeable that they had to be brought outside again. The observers may have been, 
quote, simple and rough peasants. Nevertheless, all reported that the shower happened on the same day, in the same hour, in the same moment. Can't dismiss that many peasants and 3,000 rocks. And that seems to settle it, right? These rocks were from space. So today, here's what we know about how meteorites get here. Out there in space, something slams into a planet or a comet or an asteroid, slams into it hard, catapulting a chunk of rock into a strange elliptical orbit around the sun. And at some point, this rock gets a little too close to Earth and gets sucked in by Earth's gravity. If it survives the hot, melty trip through Earth's atmosphere, it hits the ground as a meteorite. And these things fall randomly all over the world. So why would you go to middle of nowhere Antarctica to find them? Possibly the most inconvenient place you could go. The answer has to do with that blue ice. Those blue ice sheets are meteorite gold mines. So over millions of years, meteorites have fallen onto Antarctica, just like elsewhere on Earth. But in Antarctica, they get trapped in this blue ice. When those ice sheets run into a mountain range, all that old glacier ice gets forced up to the surface. And this is where Antarctica's totally insane winds kick in. We're talking 100 mile an hour winds. These winds pummel this old ice, just vaporize it. And it uncovers all these trapped space rocks. What you end up with are thousands of years worth of meteorites just sitting on the ice, waiting for someone to pick them up. In some places in Antarctica, the density of meteorites is so high that literally every few steps you take, it's another space rock. That's why you go to Antarctica. Except Antarctica doesn't always play along. Field Diary, day one. So today is our first full day in the field, and it's already a tent day. That's a day where you don't spend a lot of time outside of the tent doing anything because the winds are so strong here. It's hard to describe that sound. You probably can hear it. The other sound you can hear, that's actually the hiss from Nina's camp stove. But yeah, it's mostly wind. But it's just like somebody is wailing on this tent. One day into the field season, Antarctica is already showing its teeth. Within 24 hours of Nina actually landing out here, the weather goes from exciting to thrilling to insane. This wind would reach 62 miles an hour. That's strong enough to force snow through Nina's tent zipper. Like through the little teeth. So I woke up and there's a big snow pile inside the tent. Inside. She exits the tent to take the temperature and moments later, she's knocked flat by a wind gust. Oh yeah, did we mention it's cold? So for example, I forgot to take my contact lenses and solution into my sleeping bag with me before going to bed. And this morning I woke up and they were frozen solid. Turns out you can actually still wear contacts after they've been frozen in a block of ice. For two days, Nina and her tentmate Morgan they're basically tent-bound. They can read, they can cook, they can binge-watch Firefly. Because one of the perks of Antarctic exploration these days, you can bring your laptop. They do sneak out sometimes to grab food from their storage boxes and make the treacherous journey to the poo tent. That's its official name. Inside that tent, we have a bucket, and then we have some magazines. There's some New Yorkers. There's an outside magazine. Who reads, who reads outside magazine when they're like deeply outside. I, right? Uh, there's some scented candles. You know, it's actually rather nice. Like, okay, sorry. Person sitting on the poo bucket, smelling the perfume candle, reading outside magazine in the middle of an Antarctic windstorm. <laughs> Just take a moment with that. Okay, but eventually the storm clears, these winds will die down, 
And five days into the field season, it is finally time to hunt meteorites. Field Diary, Day 5. So today we went searching for meteorites for the first time, um, and it was it was totally different than I expected it to be. I think part of it was because, you know, people had told me that it was going to be just driving around the ice and picking up rocks, which I think it essentially is. But we went searching in a moraine, which is a bunch of rocks that have been scoured by a glacier. As glaciers move over Antarctica, they scrape up just regular earth rocks, and they collect them in these big rocky fields called moraines. In a moraine, you could be looking at tens of thousands of earth rocks with maybe a few space rocks sprinkled in. So we're in this place which has, you know, one kajillion rocks. I think that's the actual number somebody counted, one kajillion rocks. One of the veterans on the team, he tells the newbies, including Nina, go find a meteorite. I'm like, okay, what? Like, okay. And so, you know, I I had gotten a description. So meteorites, they're dark and they're shiny. And round. When a meteorite falls through Earth's atmosphere, it actually melts a little bit. All the rough edges will melt off and it forms this glassy crust on the outside. Kind of looks like the rock's been laminated. If the rock you're looking at happens to be broken open, you can look inside for these little round beads. They look like kind of tiny marbles inside. Those marbles mean you've got a super old meteorite called a chondrite. Oh yeah, and meteorites are usually magnetic. They're chock full of iron. So you can try dragging your rock around with a magnet. Worth a shot. And I'm like, okay, I can do this, right? So I'm like, what about this? He's like, nope. I'm like, how about this one? Nope, 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 nope. Nina Lanza did not find any meteorites that day. (laughs) And there were definitely meteorites there because like Morgan found two meteorites. She's like, yeah, there's one. I'm like, how do you know? How do you know? So here's the thing about these quote unquote rules. Every single one of them can be broken. So those glassy crusts, they sometimes wear off. And the rarest meteorites don't have those tiny marbles in them. But pretty much every meteorite hunter who I talked to, they said there is one surefire way to determine whether you pick up that rock. You ask Johnny. Coming up, we meet the gold prospector who's picked up more meteorites than any other human. He's got an asteroid named after him. And he does remember every rock he's ever seen. Coming up, the secrets of meteorite hunting revealed by the guy who should know. Field Diary, Day 8. One of Nina's recordings starts with a pour from a bottle. And it really is true. I've known some, some, some of the old-time prospectors. The team's gathered in their science tent. Eight people squished together on packing crates, sipping the last of the good booze. A man with a gravelly voice is talking about the prospectors he's known up in Alaska and Canada. And one guy was 102 when he finally died, but he, and he was out prospecting. <laughs> wow. You know. And then he starts to read. The spell of the Yukon. I wanted the gold and I sought it. I scrabbled and mucked like a slave. Was it famine or scurvy? I fought it. I hurled my youth into a grave. This is Johnny. The poem, The Spell of the Yukon by Robert Service, it's about a young prospector who goes up to the Yukon during the gold rush to make his fortune. And he does. He finds gold. And then he heads back home to live the good life. Somehow life's not what I thought it, and somehow the gold isn't all. Because even with all this wealth, he's not happy back home. He can't shake that Yukon wilderness. There's land, oh, it beckons and beckons, and I want to go back, and I will. 
So the prospector fritters away his fortune and goes back to the Yukon, goes gold hunting again. Yet it isn't the gold that I'm wanting so much as just finding the gold. It's the great big broad land way up yonder. It's the forest where silence has lease. It's the beauty that thrills me with wonder and the stillness that fills me with peace. So Johnny, is that you? <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> John Scott is in his 60s. He's a bespectacled guy with a short white beard and a ponytail. He has, in fact, prospected for gold up in Alaska. But that's not why he's a legend. In almost 40 years of hunting, Johnny's found more meteorites than any person in history. Not that he'd tell you that. He's not a boaster. All Johnny will say is, over years of looking at rocks, he's built up a mental catalog. Just that mental catalog of all the subtleties and colors and shapes and sizes, you know, in, in my head. So when Johnny finds a rock, it's not like he's checking off a list of characteristics. He's flipping through that mental catalog asking, have I seen this before? And he does remember every rock he's ever seen. It would not surprise me. He could, like, list all 20,000 of them. So this is how you really learn to find meteorites. You ask Johnny. You watch what he picks up. You figure out why. And eventually, it pays off. Field Diary, day six. So we're just about to head to bed. It's super warm here in Antarctica. So we went out searching uh, for meteorites. And we found some. And I was so excited that uh, I was able to spot one on the ice. Now, of course, excited might be an understatement. Months later, Nina still gets worked up talking about this. It felt amazing to find a meteorite because you wonder, you're like, you know, I know they say that everyone can find meteorites, but maybe I'm the person who can't find meteorites. I'm the worst ANSMET volunteer of all time. Like, there's always going to be one. It could be me. <laughs> so, I mean, I was just like, I know it. This is a this is a meteorite. I got this. Like, it was a classic meteorite, and I drove right up to it. <laughs> I was so excited. The rock was a chondrite, the most common type of meteorite, and the oldest. When chondrites were forming, the planets were still globs of interstellar dust and gas. They're clumping together, forming these larger and larger globs. And the leftover bits, those are the chondrites. The first meteorite that was ever discovered in Antarctica, it was actually a chondrite. In 1912, you have a mustachioed Englishman named Frank Bickerton. He's in Antarctica, essentially trying to invent the snowmobile, the skidoo, um, which is a total bust. But one day, he and his men are heading back to camp when... A piece of rock, which we took to be a meteorite, was found on the surface of the snow. It measured approximately five inches by three inches and was covered with a black scale. But Bickerton's find becomes a side note. The story most people tell is about Bickerton's three teammates. It's the classic Antarctic tale of woe, a series of truly unfortunate events. The men were surveying glaciers when suddenly one man's dog sled plunged down a crevasse, a 150-foot deep gash in the glacier. The team's food and tent went down with him. The two men left behind had to eat their sled dogs to survive, inadvertently poisoning themselves with the vitamin A in the dogs' livers. Only one of the three made it back alive. And the thing is, Antarctic history is just riddled with stories like this. And what's surprising isn't how much has changed in a hundred years. It's what hasn't. Satellite phones, 
and planes and better gear, they do wonders for safety. And let it be known, no one has ever died on an ANZMET trip. But crevasses, like the one Bickerton's teammate fell into, those still lurk under the snow. Last year, a climate researcher was killed when he fell into one. In the deep field, storms can keep rescue planes away for hours or days. Johnny and Nina both told me, Antarctica, it's not really a place where humans are meant to be. And you know, Antarctica makes that clear all the time. The wind just doesn't care about you. It can tear your, your tent apart. It'll tear you apart. It, you know, you can feel the power that's behind it. I, I guess it doesn't feel malevolent. It's not like Antarctica is out to get you, but it's like you don't matter at all. You are nothing out there. And it's not just the physical danger, the wind, the cold, the constant discomfort. It's this feeling of being completely cut off in a way that feels almost impossible at home. You're so isolated out there in the field. I mean, so isolated. And it's in every possible way. There's no internet, no email, no texts. The only news you get comes from very expensive satellite phone calls home. You are alone. Or more accurately, according to the team's science lead, Jim Carner, you are alone in very, very close quarters with one complete stranger. Your tentmate. You are actually living with someone that is not your spouse, and you're living basically for six weeks them, sleeping right next to them, and cooking with them every night. Uh, so it's it's a very kind of odd situation uh, for most uh, adults, I think. I mean, when do we ever do that? Here's when we might do that. On a spaceship headed to Mars. It turns out NASA thinks Antarctica is a pretty good analog for a Mars mission. That's why every night Nina would fill out a journal for these psychologists at Michigan State University. They're trying to understand the stresses people face living in places like this. Because emotionally, Antarctica is like being on another planet. You just, we are surrounded by people who love us. Most of us are lucky enough to have family and friends. You know, people who, who can provide you know, for a lot of our emotional needs and support us in ways that we don't even understand until they're gone until they're just not there anymore, you know. The networks that you've built up over your whole life are suddenly just not not close anymore. Field Diary, day 12. Christmas. Good morning from Miller Ridge, Antarctica. So it's Christmas morning for the ANZMET crew and the team's out hunting meteorites on their snowmobiles. Imagine eight scientists in puffy parkas sitting on these yellow skidoos. They're all spread out in a line, like lanes of traffic. They're driving forward about as fast as you could speed walk. Everyone's scanning their lane for rocks. And then Jim Carner, the science lead, he's riding along the edge of the ice sheet when he notices something. There was a rock there that was kind of buried in the snow, but very close to the ice. And it was round. It looked like a meteorite. Uh, but when I kind of dug it out of the snow, I thought, oh, it's just a treasure rock. It didn't look like a meteorite. The rock was gray, not black. There was no glassy crust. But something was kind of nagging at me. It was really spherical. So Jim does what you do in these situations. He asks Johnny. Johnny, who never forgets a rock. Well, it was sort of grayish with with small white crystals distributed throughout it. Coarse, crystalline interior that in the past that's kind of looked like maybe a Martian uh, volcanic rock. The rock was volcanic, so in geology lingo, a basalt. And the reason Jim's a little excited now is that basalt means it came from a planet. Asteroids don't usually have basalts. Mars has basalts. Then again, 
so does Earth. But then Johnny says... That's... That... We have to collect this. He said, I'm not sure if it's a meteorite or not, but it's certainly not like any terrestrial rocks we've seen around this area. Johnny paged through that mental catalog, and a guy who has seen everything had not seen this rock. Not here. Then the excitement builds, because then you start speculating on (laughs) what it could be, you know, uh, if it could be Martian or whatever. Those are the highest hopes. And for now... All Jim, Johnny, and Nina have is speculation. To really know where this rock came from, it'll have to go all the way to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Cindy Evans and the Space Rock CSI team will have to do their analysis, cut a thin section, examine it through an electron microscope. Nine months from now, Cindy Evans will know the answer to this rock mystery. And Nina will be able to call her for the official verdict. But on this Christmas morning, all the team can do is carefully bag the rock and give it a number. Two three zero four two. Sort of, yeah. Mm. It's later that night, and the team's gathered in their science tent for Christmas dinner. There's some tinsel strung up. Someone made a Christmas star out of tinfoil. At home, Nina's not a big Christmas person. But in Antarctica, cut off from everything familiar, she says she missed the holiday more than she expected. Miss the thing that, as a longtime singer, she loves about this holiday. Christmas carols. I was like, look, I don't know if anyone's going to be into this, but I'm just, just in case, I'm going to bring some sheet music and a pitch pipe. People, maybe they're not into it, but maybe if it's all right here and so easy to do, like, maybe we'll just sing some songs, you know, no pressure, no pressure. So, so like, I was hoping, I was really hoping. Okay, ready? Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? It turns out Khan is a secret singer, and he's got this beautiful tenor voice. I was like, wow, why did no one tell me this before? This was amazing. And then, like, Jim Carner comes out of nowhere, like, having a really lovely voice, too. Jim is not somebody I thought was I was going to convince to sing. But Jim was like, let's do this. I felt like the team really supported me in that way. Because it, it obviously was much more of my thing than it was anyone else's thing. But they were willing to support me because they knew how important that was to me and how much I was enjoying it. It's tired. Stopping to share food and songs. Supporting each other. It's important in Antarctica. But it's going to be even more important on Mars. The first Mars astronauts will spend something like two and a half years with their crewmates. Or more. Christmas Calls Home will come with a delay of up to 24 minutes, and that's just one way. When you're on Mars, your support will have to come from your team. Because there is no one else. 23042 would stay frozen, packed in its bag, all the way back to McMurdo Station. It would stay frozen for months in a container ship on its way to California, frozen in a FedEx truck all the way to Johnson Space Center in Houston, where finally Cindy Evans unpacks it. And then, last September, Nina and I gave Cindy a call to get the official verdict on 23042. So the question of the hour, I'll just put to you, Cindy, is 23042 from space? So the short answer is 
No, unfortunately, it's a terrestrial basalt. Oh, oh, man. Yeah, I know. Bummer. That's but, okay. I mean, it was yeah. weirdo. Yeah, tell so, me more so, about But it. the thing is that we were all strung out on a line for for months. There was a lot of people in the office that were pulling for it, first to be Martian and then to be lunar. Oh, man. It, was there money on the table? No, there was not no, money okay. on the table. We, we, that was suggested, but that never happened. So how did it get there? Well, sorry, yeah, sorry exactly Nina. I want to know. So here's Cindy's best guess. 23042 comes from Antarctica. Potentially very far away in Antarctica. Its round shape isn't from coming through the atmosphere. It's from being rolled along by a glacier for potentially hundreds of thousands of years. We know 23042 isn't Martian because of the mix of oxygen isotopes in it doesn't match the mix in Mars rocks, but it does match Earth rocks. And I was pretty bummed about this because for me, there'd been something extremely poetic about the idea that Nina, who spends literally every day probing a planet that is millions of miles away, could have actually happened on a piece of that planet, actually touched it with sterilized tongs. But Nina, she bounced right back. You know, it's just that's just part of um, that's just part of meteorite hunting, right? And right away, she's asking Cindy, "Okay, what else we got?" I'm just curious, like uh, about the potential HED meteorites. Did you guys take a look at those? Oh, we did, and actually, there were at least three that we announced. What? Yes. So that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Yes. An HED meteorite is from the asteroid Vesta. Vesta is the second biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt. It's about the length of Arizona. And Vesta meteorites are rare. Not Mars rare, but rare. It's a good get. They're beautiful. So there was three eucrites and one diogenite that were... Translation, Cindy's saying there's actually four. Four Vesta meteorites. What? That's that's awesome. (laughs) I mean, all meteorites are a success, but wow. Four Vesta meteorites. I'm I'm really I'm really pleased. Good for us. High five. That's right. Yeah, good work, <laughs> Team Anzmet. Nina knows how hard meteorite hunting is now. She understands the isolation, the physical demands. But when I asked her if she'd go back, she didn't even hesitate. Of course she'd go back. And that's not unusual. Jim Carner, who spotted 23042. He says pretty much 100% of the people who go on these meteorite expeditions once, they reapply. And it's not just the landscape and the quiet and the out-there-ness that draws people back. Jim says meteorite hunting scratches a very primal itch. You know, there's hunters of all types of sort, fossil hunters, gold hunters, treasure hunters, you know, even coin collectors and stamp collectors are always looking for that elusive and rare piece to fit in their collections. We are a collecting species, driven on by the promise that the next rock that we pick up is going to be the one that changes everything, like the prospector in the poem. Yet it isn't the gold that I'm wanting so much as just finding the gold. It's why meteorite hunters from all over the world have picked up 50,000 space rocks in Antarctica. And it's why we will go to Mars, to feel that rock in our hand, instead of just combing the ice for whatever gravity tosses our way. But until we're on Mars, the meteorite hunters will keep searching, keep prospecting, looking for that piece of Martian gold.
Undiscovered is reported and produced by me, Annie Minoff. And me, Ella Fetter. Our editor is Christopher Intagliata. Special shout out this week to Ari Daniel, our story consultant, and to Alistair Gardner and Charles Berquist for voice acting. Thanks also to Daniel Dana, Christian Scotta, Brandon Ector, Rachel Boughton, and Sarah Fishman. We had fact-checking help from Michelle Harris. Original music is by Daniel Peterschmidt. I am Robot and Proud, wrote our theme. And a special thanks to our launch partner, the John Templeton Foundation. Find more Undiscovered on Twitter at UndiscoveredPod or on our website, undiscoveredpodcast.org. 